Well, in some branches of the Amish faith, there's a thing called rumspringa. Maybe you've heard of it before. Translated, it means running around. And what it is, is an invitation to young adults to go and explore the world, to go out on an adventure, and then decide whether they want to be a part of the Amish community or not. Now, for many of these young adults, it starts actually when they're 16 years old, and they're seen as no longer being under the authority of their parents or of the church. And so on weekends, typically, they go maybe into the big city. They go and explore technology. Sometimes they explore some vices and some temptations. And then they have to make a decision. And the decision is, are they going to be baptized into the Amish faith and join with the community for the rest of their life? Or are they going to go another direction? Are they going to go into the wider world? But the thing is, if they make that decision, typically they are shunned by the Amish community. So it's this opportunity to go and wander, to go and search, to go and explore. Now, I'm willing to bet there are probably very few people either here in the room or online that come from an Amish background. But I think probably every one of us has done something very similar in our life. It's just that we call it something different than rumspringa. And for some of us, we called it freshman year. For others, we maybe called it spring break. Others, maybe it's a midlife crisis. For others, maybe it's a buying a hot red convertible springa or something like that. I think every one of us during our life has wandered away We've gone out to explore. We've maybe done things that have caused us to be further and further away from God and the relationship we had with him. You know, during this pandemic, we brought this up numerous times. During this pandemic, statistics say many, many Christians are wandering away from their faith. Huge percentage of Christians are deciding not to engage with the church anymore. People are wandering out and exploring and in turn are finding themselves further and further away from faith. Now, can you relate to that at all? In fact, if you were to be honest today, how would you describe your relationship with God? Are you closer or are you further from him than when this pandemic started? Well, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling Finding Your Way Back to God. And you know, really, that's what this church is all about. For 75 years, this church has been about helping people find their way to God. Whether it's your first time or it's your 50th time. Throughout its history, people again and again have found their way to God. Maybe it's through something uh, impactful like Alpha or through a discipleship group or through a small group or a worship experience. For some people, it's a mountaintop experience and it happens quickly. And for others, it's maybe been a long process that's taken years. But again, this church is founded on the idea that God wants a relationship with us. And what we want to do is to help people find their way to God. But it's not just a one-time thing because I think every one of us finds ourselves drifting, walking away, wandering at different times in our life. And that's why we say our mission here at Calvary is leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Relationships, we all know, are not static. They don't stay the same every single day. Whether it's a marriage or a friendship, whatever relationship it is, there's ups and downs. There's times that you're close and there's sometimes that you're far. And so in our faith journey, we have to keep thinking about and praying about and realizing where we're at in that relationship with God. And sometimes we find ourselves further away than we want to be and we remember his invitation to come back, to find our way back to him. Well, last week we talked about the first step in this process of finding our way back to God. And we talked about having an awakening to longing. You see, every one of us has longings deep down within us, in our soul. We have a longing for love, for meaning, for significance, for purpose. And the problem becomes when we try to satisfy those longings apart from God. When we decide to wander away and try to find something else to fill us. You know, sometimes we go out into the world and we think this thing is going to be it. It's going to be how I find fulfillment, I find satisfaction. But anything apart from God ultimately leaves us empty and unfulfilled. Well, the next step in this journey in finding our way back to God is often what comes next. When we've chased our longings into the wrong place, when we find ourselves at a low point in our life, we often find ourselves saying something like, You know, I wish I could start over. I mean, I've gone down this path way too long, and I just wish I could start over. It's an awakening to regret. I've chased after these longings in all the wrong places, and I can't believe that I did those things. I hope nobody finds out. Have you ever been there before? Man, if I could have a do-over... I would definitely do things differently. You know, if I could get into the time machine from back to the future and go back a couple of decades, I would go tell the younger version of myself, don't do that. Don't take that turn. Don't make that stupid decision. Well, last week we talked about one of the greatest stories that's ever been told in history. It's Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And if you didn't catch last week's message, no worries. You can go online and you can watch it this week because we go much more in depth into this story. But you might remember it's a story of this young son who insults his father by going and asking for his inheritance early, which essentially is saying, Dad, why don't you die already? I just want your money. And the father cashes in all of his investments and sells his land, liquidates everything so that the son can have his inheritance, takes the cash, and he goes to the big city. And he blows it on trying to satisfy his longings in all sorts of scandalous places. Next thing he knows, he's dead broke, he's homeless, and he's working with pigs, which is the worst thing for a Jewish person to have to do. But there's a turning point in the story that comes in Luke 15, starting in verse 17. It's when this young son has a second awakening, an awakening to his regret. Look at verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, I think there are two important things that happen in those two verses. First, he comes to his senses, and then he turns and he goes home. Now, we don't know how much time takes place between those two things. It could have been hours. It could have been days. It could have been months. He awakens to his regret. He comes to his senses, but then he takes action to go home. And I think every one of us can probably relate to that. We have those moments where we suddenly think, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I going down this path? But it's one thing to realize it. It's another to actually take action and start moving the other direction. Have you ever been there before? You're walking down a destructive path. Maybe people in your life are even trying to get your attention. They're trying to tell you that you are doing the wrong thing, but you just don't see it. You're convinced that you're okay, that you're going the right direction. But one day you start to feel stuck. Suddenly you have no reason for hope. You have no reason to look forward to the future. You have nowhere to turn and you're far away from where you hope to be. You finally, in that moment, awaken. You come to your senses. You see the damage that you're doing to yourself and to others. Now the good news is you can't come back to God. You can't find your way to God until this happens. Until you wake up and start to see things clearly. But even then, there's something that often keeps us from taking the next step. For some of us, it's pride. For some of us, it's guilt. For some, it's shame. If you're familiar with the 12 steps of AA at all, the third step is this. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. See, first you have to awaken, you have to come to your senses and understand that you're engaged in dangerous and damaging behavior. But this third step says, then we make a decision and turn our will and turn our lives. It's not until we turn around that we can start heading back home. See, there has to be purposeful action and change That starts us down the right road again. Now, the Bible has a word for this, and it's used many times throughout Scripture. It's the word repentance. I'm sure you've heard it before. The thing is, I think oftentimes the church has not done a great job explaining what repentance means. Sometimes we hear it as this very condemning thing, like shape up or you will be doomed. It's not really what it's about. There are two different words primarily used for repentance In the Bible, in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, the word for repentance is metanoia. Everybody say it together. Metanoia. It might come in handy someday. You never know, maybe Jeopardy or something like that. Metanoia means to change your mind, change your thinking. The other word is teshuva. Everybody try it together. Teshuva. Teshuva is the Hebrew word for repentance, which means to return to where you came from. So think back to that story about the young son that Jesus tells. First, he changes his mind, and then he returns 
to where he came from. Repentance isn't just saying, sorry, my bad, and then continuing to do what you've always done. Repentance is actually saying, I understand what I am doing wrong. I understand the damage that I have done, and I'm going to do everything that I can to not do it again. See, it's literally a turning point. It's a changing of thinking and also a changing of direction. But I think for most of us, repentance is really, really hard to embrace because we tend to minimize our sin and our brokenness. Now, we have no problem holding other people to a very high standard, right? We want other people to follow all the rules to a T. But we always explain ourselves in the best possible light, right? We give ourselves tons of grace. We give ourselves tons of understanding, And so oftentimes it's hard for us to come to a place of repentance. Brennan Manning was a former Catholic priest who became an author. He wrote some incredible books. My favorite is The Ragamuffin Gospel. And when I was a kid, we had Brennan come to our church a couple times to just share with us. And I was mesmerized by his storytelling. And there's one story that's in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, that he also told at our church that has stuck with me ever since. It's a story of when he was in treatment for alcoholism in the 1970s, actually in Minneapolis. And he was in a group setting, group therapy. And every day, about 20 of them would meet with a counselor. And every day, one person from the group was put on the hot seat. So on this particular day, a man named Max was put on the hot seat See, Max uh, had been in and out of treatment for many, many years. He was a successful businessman. He had five children. So as he sat there, the counselor started to ask some questions, said, Max, how many drinks a day do you have? Max said, I don't really have a drinking problem. I mean, I don't drink any more than anyone else. I have it completely under control. So the counselor got got out the phone, got his notepad, found a number, and called the tavern close to Max's house in the town that he was from. He said, can I speak to the bartender, please? And the bartender got on the phone and he said, could you tell me how many drinks a day Max has? I've got permission, I've got it in writing, so just feel free to share. The bartender said, Max, Max is a heck of a guy. He's in here every single day, 365 days a year. He buys seven or eight drinks and then he covers a round for the whole bar. Everybody loves Max. Now, Max is furious at this point, and he is cursing out the counselor, the bartender, the whole group. But then he gets himself under control, and he makes some excuses. He said, well, you know, Jesus got mad every so often, didn't he? Well, then the counselor said, well, Max, have you ever hurt any of your children because of your drinking? Max said, no, I'm a great father. I just went on a fishing trip with my four sons. It was amazing. And the counselor said, hey, every father has done something unkind to their children at least once. So just share one time. Max says, well, it kind of occurs to me there was something that happened on a Christmas Eve to my daughter. You know, I maybe wasn't as thoughtful as I could have been, but it wasn't a big deal. And the counselor said, well, could you share the details? And Max said, I don't even remember what happened. And so the counselor got out another phone number and called Max's wife. Said, could you talk about what happened to your daughter on Christmas Eve, and his wife took a deep breath 
and sadly said, well, our daughter had turned nine years old and she really wanted some new shoes. And so on Christmas Eve, Max took her downtown to the nicest department store and gave her $60 to buy whatever pair of shoes she wanted. And she was so excited. After she picked out the shoes, they got back in the car and she got up close to Max and she kissed him on the cheek and she said, you're the best daddy in the world. Well, as they drove on, Max was in the greatest mood. He wanted to celebrate, so he pulled over to the nearest bar. It was 12 degrees out, so he kept the car running. He locked the doors, and he told his daughter he'd be back soon. He went in to get a drink. It was 3 in the afternoon. But he met up with some army buddies, and he lost track of time, and it was after midnight when he came back to the car, and it had run out of gas. Well, his daughter was severely frostbitten, one of her hands and her ears. He took her immediately to the emergency room where they had to amputate two of her fingers and she'll be deaf the rest of her life and his wife is in tears. Well, Max fell out of his chair sobbing and sobbing and the counselor stood up and he yelled at him. He said, pack up your bags, get out of here. You see, this is a treatment place for alcoholics, not for liars. And Max begged not to be sent away. And he started to admit what he had done. And he owned what he had done for the very first time. And he expressed true regret and that he desperately needed to start over. And Brennan said it was the most amazing transformation that he had ever witnessed in his life over the coming weeks ahead. Because Max repented. He owned his sin And then he started down a new road to healing. Now this process is exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. You see, godly sorrow, that regret is what leads us to repentance where we turn around and we find our way back to God. And the amazing thing is that leaves us free from regret. Church, every one of us, if we're honest, would say we have junk in our life. Every one of us has regrets. Now, many of us can get that far. After coming to our senses and realizing that, we have an awful hard time taking the next step, returning home. Shame, guilt, fear, they all get in the way. We ask questions like, am I beyond hope? Could God ever accept somebody like me? Maybe I can't even start my way back. And what happens is we get wrapped up in a cycle of regret. See, it's one thing to have the awakening to regret. It's another to start to take action and take a step forward. Well, the good news for every one of us today is that we can change. The good news for every one of us is how the parable ends. We're going to get more into depth in that in the weeks ahead. But what I want you to hear is that no matter what your story is, no matter how far you have wandered away You have a loving father who waits for you to come home. Just like any recovery process, it takes being honest, owning up to our sin, and then repenting, changing your mind, changing your direction, and returning back home. 
And the thing is, you're going to realize that God has never moved. In fact, he is closer than you could ever imagine. And his arms are wide open. Now, all along our faith journey, we have milestones that happen. We have times that we plant a stake and we say, I want to continue in this direction. I want to put God first in my life. And one of those turning points, one of those celebrations is baptism. And so we have an incredible opportunity coming up in a couple weeks on Sunday, November 1st. We're going to have immersion baptisms here at Calvary. And if you've never been baptized before or you were baptized when you were young and you'd like to remember your baptism, we'd like to invite you to come and participate. It's, it's saying, I want to turn around. I want to find my way to God, and I intend to stay there. Now, don't worry. We're going to be all COVID-friendly. We're going to make sure we do it in the safest way possible. But why not come and celebrate your intention to go back home? Because God's arms are wide open. Now, last week, I invited you to pray a short prayer. It's a prayer, God, if you are real, Make yourself real to me. And I've heard some amazing testimonies from people this week having God moments. This week, I want to invite you to continue to pray that short prayer and then add this line. God, awaken in me the confidence that with you, I can start over. God, awaken in me the confidence, the knowledge that with you, I can start over, no matter what your regret is, no matter what your story is. See, you don't have to stay in that cycle of regret anymore. You don't have to just wish you could start over. Today could be the day that you finally come home. Well, another favorite author of mine is a guy named Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey wrote this book called What's So Amazing About Grace? He tells a short story in this book that I think gives a great picture of what it looks like to come home. So a young girl named Jennifer grows up on a cherry orchard just north of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are old-fashioned, And they tend to overreact to things like her nose ring, the music she listens to, and her tattoos. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. And she runs away to the big city of Detroit. On her second day there, she meets a man who drives the nicest car that she's ever seen in her life. And he offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. And he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. Well, the man with the nice car teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's young, men pay top dollar for her services. But after a few years, she's no longer bringing in top dollar anymore. So she's thrown out onto the street with no place to stay, 
and no money to support the expensive drug habit that she's developed. So one night, Jennifer tries to fall asleep in an alleyway with just a few newspapers spread out to try and stay warm. Her memory is suddenly triggered, and she remembers back to those sunny, happy spring days amongst all the cherry trees back in Traverse City. She realizes that renting out her body on the streets of Detroit is no way to live. She decides that she'll head north, she'll move to Canada, and try to start over. On her way north, she figures she'll try something that actually has no chance of working. She gives her parents a call, but no one answers. So she leaves a voicemail, telling them that she'll be coming through town the very next day on her way to Canada. And if they wanna see her, she'll be at the bus station at midnight. After she hangs up, she kicks herself. She thinks that was a stupid thing to do. Odds are they're way happier now that she's gone. Well, the next day, the bus heads north. She slowly sees signs saying the bus is getting closer and closer to Traverse City. She runs through all the possible scenarios in her mind. Most likely, no one will be there to meet her at all. Or maybe one person will be there just to shame her and condemn her. She even tries to think of what she would say to her father to try and apologize and ask for forgiveness. Well, the bus finally arrives in Traverse City and she hears the bus driver call out, 15 minutes at this stop, 15 minutes. She steps off the bus, not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There at midnight, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. Not only that, they're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home, Jennifer. Out of the crowd of people celebrating breaks her dad, and she stares through all the tears in her eyes and begins her memorized speech, Dad, I'm so sorry, I know. And he immediately interrupts her, and he says, Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. Because you'll be late for the party. 
There's a banquet waiting for you at home. You see, all that really mattered is that his beloved child had come home. I'm coming home, I'm coming home, tell the world.